0: Good morning. Let's open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Does anyone see around them like a tissue box? Aha. Thank you. Sorry, there's going to be some of that this morning. (coughs) Exodus chapter 6. If you're not used to reading the Bible... We get it. We've been there. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. The chapter numbers are the large numbers. The verse numbers are the smaller numbers. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 6 this morning, starting in verse 1. We're not going to start reading just yet, though. In December 1914, Ernest Shackleton and a crew of 27 set out on the HMS Endurance. Their intention was to be the first expedition to cross the entire continent of Antarctica. But before you can cross the continent of Antarctica, you actually have to get to the continent of Antarctica. So as Shackleton and crew made their way through the icy ocean surrounding the frozen continent, they unfortunately became stuck in the pack ice, frozen in place, as one crew member put it, like an almond in the middle of a chocolate bar. What followed was a 20-month-long saga of life or death in the frozen tundra. In one of the, in my opinion, greatest adventure books ever written called Endurance by Alfred Lansing, Lansing walks his readers through every detail of that journey of the expedition. And one of the things that stood out most to me as I read Lansing's book was the quality of Shackleton's leadership. Very few men in the history of the world could do what Shackleton did, leading 27 men through the most harrowing circumstances and delivering them alive in the end, albeit missing a few fingers and toes to frostbite. Now, at several points throughout this journey, Shackleton had to make decisions that his men could not understand. He issued orders that they couldn't wrap their minds around. Why, for example, would you keep your men on sea watch around the clock for weeks on end when you are completely frozen, stuck in the ice? As often is the case with leadership, Shackleton had purposes beyond the superficial, in the decisions that he had to make and those decisions were often incomprehensible to those he was leading. If you've ever been in a position of leadership, you know how difficult it can be to make decisions that don't make immediate sense to those that you are leading. Parents, for example, are constantly having to make decisions that their children just don't understand. Bosses, likewise, often have to make decisions that their employees can't comprehend because they just can't see the full picture. At the end of the day, leaders must often make decisions with higher purposes in mind and trust the process. The same thing, of course, is true of God. He often leads us in ways that are initially difficult for us to wrap our minds around because we don't see all that he sees. We don't know all that he knows. His purposes seem strange to us. He's not leading us at a superficial human level. He's leading us at the divine level. So take the Exodus event as an example. Have you ever wondered why it is that God chose to unleash the ten plagues on Egypt? He didn't have to do it that way. He could have redeemed Israel in any number of different ways other than releasing a, a series of ever worsening plagues. He could have just, you know, z- zapped Pharaoh, right, and killed him right there on the spot. Israel's could have, Israelites could have gone free. Or he could have released a highly, like a, like a heavenly powered bioweapon that just, you know, one plague that targeted Pharaoh and all of his people and left the Israelites alive and they could have escaped. Or instead of hardening Pharaoh's heart, he could have softened Pharaoh's heart so that he would just kindly, gently, peacefully let the people go. In other words, God could have ended this whole thing really quickly and without much drama. And God knows that. He actually says that to Pharaoh, he says that through Moses to Pharaoh. In Exodus 9, he says this, which is, I, I just love when moments when God just kind of flexes a little bit, right? By now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the face of the earth. God knows. Hey, buddy, I could have ended this whole thing a long time ago, Okay? So this leads us to ask, I think, why does God go through this long, drawn-out process? Why the back and forth? Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart over and over and over again, sovereignly ensuring that Pharaoh will not listen, that he will not let the people go, that suffering will increase in the land? Why does God rescue his people in this fashion? In order to answer that question, you kind of have to understand what the whole point of the book of Exodus is. The point of the Exodus is not ultimately the redemption of God's people. Does that seem weird? It's kind of the way we've been trained to think about Exodus, right? It's a story of how God came and rescued Israel. That's not wrong. Notice the operative word here. The point of Exodus is not ultimately, ultimately the redemption of God's people. If the point of the Exodus was ultimately about the redemption of Israel, God could have just done it quickly and gotten it over with. But that wasn't the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal of the Exodus, note takers, was not the redemption of God's people, but rather the revelation of his name. Revelation just means to reveal, something that's obscure or hidden, but now it's plain and in sight and understood. The, I'll say that again. The ultimate goal of the Exodus was not the redemption of God's people, but rather the revelation of God's name. Now, you might be wondering, Sean, where are you getting that from? I mean, it sounds nice. It's a, you got the R and the R, redemption, revelation. You got some alliteration. That's nice, but is this biblical? Yes. Turn with me to Exodus chapter five. We're gonna do a little walk through Exodus. I wanna show you guys a pattern. That clues us into the purpose of this book. Starting, and we're going to be flipping, so have your Bibles open, Bible apps open, ready to flip. Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Uh, in other words, your name has not been revealed to me. And I'm kind of the king of the earth. Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Exodus 6, 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Exodus chapter (coughs) 7, verse 5. The Egyptians, not just Pharaoh, but the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Exodus chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned into blood Exodus chapter 8, verse 10, when Pharaoh asked for relief from the frogs, that's what's taking place in this scenario, Exodus chapter 8, verse 10, and he said, tomorrow, and Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Exodus chapter 8, verse 22, but on the day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. So that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Exodus chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Exodus chapter 9, verse 29. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Exodus chapter 10, verse 2. Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you... May know that I am the Lord. Exodus chapter 11, verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Exodus chapter 14, verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory. Over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus 14:18, "And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten my glory over Pharaoh his chariots and his horsemen. Exodus chapter 16 verse six. Therefore Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, "At evening you shall know. That it was the lord who brought you out of the land of egypt you starting to see it the ultimate aim of the exodus event is not the redemption of god's people but rather the revelation of god's name the redemption of god's people through his mighty deeds through his outstretched arms through the ten plagues is the means by which god fully reveals his name to all who are involved. Brothers and sisters, you will never understand the Bible. You will never understand the gospel. You will never understand God. You won't even understand yourself unless you understand that the God that we serve is a God who is eager to reveal himself. It's one of the main ways that God makes himself known, these acts of mighty deeds. Now, you may be thinking, wow, Sean, that's really great. That's helpful. I I, I think I know now how to better read the book of Exodus. But what does that really have to do with this morning's text? That's a great question. Let's read this morning's text together. Exodus chapter six. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, He will drive them out of His own land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I'm the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips." But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Though this is a story from a faraway land many centuries ago, this is nevertheless God's inspired word. It's completely true, completely trustworthy, and utterly sufficient to give us everything we need this morning. Amen. So if you remember last week's text, things ended on a low note. Moses was discouraged. He was fearful. He was doubting. In this morning's text, God is going to prepare this weakened Moses for what's to come, his showdown with Pharaoh. He's saying, in essence, get ready because you're about to see what I'm really all about, what I can really do. Stand back and watch me. And then the plagues begin. But before God acts, he teaches. He takes the time to explain to Moses that all of these mighty deeds that are about to unfold before his eyes are ultimately about making himself known. That's the point of verses 2 and 3. Go back. Look at verses 2 and 3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, that is, I made myself known to them, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, we call them the patriarchs, as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, this is really interesting. God tells us, he tells Moses, that he revealed himself to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as God Almighty. That's how it's translated in your English Bibles. That's a really good translation the words behind that are El Shaddai, and that's essentially what they mean, God Almighty, or the all-powerful God. So he says, "I, I revealed myself like that to the patriarchs, but now in the Exodus event, I'm revealing myself to you as Yahweh. Before, El Shaddai, now, Yahweh. To the patriarchs, El Shaddai. To the Exodus people, Yahweh. Now this seems pretty straightforward at first glance, except there's a little bit of a problem here. The name Yahweh, which is said here, I'm, I'm giving it to you now, Moses, is actually used all throughout the book of Genesis, before the Exodus of it. So there are two, there are two possible solutions to this, interpreting, uh, this interpretive question. Uh, let's, let's walk through them. The first way to think through this is that God did in fact not reveal himself as Yahweh to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But Moses later, as he's writing the Pentateuch, as he's writing the first five books of the Bible, as he's telling the story, he just uses the name of Yahweh when he's talking about the Lord because he has come to know him by that name. That's a pretty reasonable solution, I think. The second way of looking at this question says that God did actually name himself Yahweh. He revealed himself as Yahweh to the patriarchs. But they did not understand the significance of his name because they had not fully seen his power of redemption. I'm inclined to agree with that section, second option, and I'm going to tell you why. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The author of Hebrews says this, Long ago, like in the days of Exodus, for example, and in the days of of the patriarchs, for example, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed to be the heir of all things. So, if you are not super familiar with Christian theology, there's a doctrine that we believe in. It's called the doctrine of progressive revelation. It's not super hard to understand. It's kind of built into the name, right? God reveals himself to his people progressively. That does not mean that God reveals himself, you know, with blue hair And as a vegan, right? God reveals himself little by little. He does not reveal himself all at once in the same way that you, in fact, do not reveal yourself to a stranger all at once in your very first conversation. Some of you might, (laughs) and that's why we love you. We're so glad you're here at Sixth Avenue. It's so easy to build a relationship with you, right? But We don't typically do that, and the same thing is true of God, who is a person in relationship with us, other people. So why do we go to the book of Hebrews? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us that the fullest and final revelation of who God is, is Jesus. If If you ask, who is God? What is God like? You look at Jesus, you find the answer to those questions. But, long before God fully revealed himself in Jesus, The author of Hebrews says that he revealed himself in different ways. That's the language of progressive revelation. Think about it like this When you first meet someone, you enter into a kind of relationship with them. The relationship may be temporary and fleeting, like when you meet a waitress. You may never see her again, but you may be friendly while she's taking your order and bringing your food and going through the checkout. Or, you may form a, a lifetime, like a, a long-lasting relationship that becomes very serious and committed, but when you first meet someone, and when you exchange names, you form a relationship. Now, when you first hear someone's name, it may strike you in any number of different ways. You might think, well, that's an ugly name, or that's a beautiful name, or that's a very unique name, or that's such a common name, or it's a trendy name, or it's an old-timey name, or that's an old lady's name. But it usually, when we hear someone's name, it does not tell us that much about a person. It might tell you something about them. When I met a a guy named Lachlan, I immediately knew that his family was somehow connected to Australia. We just don't have that name here. I know that that name is connected to Australia. So his name told me a little bit about him, but not a lot. But then as the relationship progresses, you learn more and more about who that person is. Their their character is revealed through their actions. And what that does is it loads their name with meaning and significance. Are you guys tracking? In the same way, when God made a covenant with his people through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he did tell them his covenant name. It would be strange to form a covenant relationship with the people and not give them your covenant name. He gave them his covenant name, but then they had to continue to learn more and more about his nature and character. God's people have to learn more about him as they interact with him, as they behold his deeds, as they come to understand his saving power. Yahweh, the name Yahweh, meant more to Moses than it did to Abraham. Because Moses saw something more of God through his mighty saving deeds than what Abraham saw. In the same way, God's name, Yahweh, means more, or it meant more, and means more, to David than it did to Moses. And it meant more to the apostles than it did to David. And it, believe it or not, means more to Christians today than it did to the apostles. There's something about the ministry of Jesus that reveals God more fully to us than he was known by Abraham, Moses, or David during their time on earth. The Bible actually says that there's something about being on the other side of the cross, seeing the full picture of redemption that we have in Jesus, that even the angels long to look into. There's something about that that the angels go, this is an aspect of God's character that we, we were kind of unfamiliar with. We need to peer into that we, so we can try to understand more of the God that we worship. You can also see this in the negative. I recently had lunch with a friend who has walked away from the faith. And one of the things that stuck out to me about our time together was how this friend no longer refers to God as a person. He now speaks of the divine. He uses impersonal language. He speaks of God as an it rather than a he. God, to my friend, has become a cold, distant, silent, impersonal force in the universe. So you can imagine that during our time together, I was trying to persuade him that in fact the God of the Bible, the God that is real... The God who made him, the God who made me, the God that made all of us, is, is not cold. He's not distant. He's not silent. He is, in fact, warm. He is relational. He's near to us. And he speaks to us. He speaks to us through nature. If you cannot study the human cell and go, well, that's just the product of time and chance acting on matter. Any more than you would walk outside and see a car. This complex thing and go, whoa, time and chance acting on matter. Given enough time, yeah, you get a car. You don't look at nature and see that. You look at nature and you see God communicating himself. God communicates himself through our conscience. That little thing that you just cannot escape from. Even when you try to walk away from what you know to be right and true, you just somehow can't do it. You can never fully live out the the consistency of your unbelieving worldview, even if you try. God speaks to us through providence, the events of history unfolding. He speaks to us as Christians through His Spirit living in us. He speaks to us through His Word. He speaks to us through His Son. Francis Schaefer once wrote a book called He is There and He is Not Silent. What a great book title! And it should absolutely stun us that the God of the universe has actually chosen to speak to us, to reveal himself to us. The man, the author of the story, wrote himself into the story so that we, the characters in the story, might know the one who made us. It didn't have to be that way. The God of the universe could have been the God of the deus the distant God, the utterly transcendent God who is in no way imminent, the clockmaker God. He just sort of sets all the gears in place and winds everything up and then closes it and steps back and, you know, I'll see you on the other side. But that is not the God of the Bible who is intimately involved with the creation that he so very much loves. Our God is a God who is not only glorious but who desires to make his glory known. but you can't stop there. You can't just say, well, yeah, God wants to make himself known. That's true, but it's insufficient. You have to go go on and say that God doesn't merely communicate his presence in some vague, general sense. You have to understand that he makes himself known specifically. He gives his people a name. That's a a specificity in his uh, revelation. A name tells us about people, especially the more we get to know them. But we can't stop there either. God doesn't merely give us his name and then sort of leave it up to us to like figure out what that name means. You know, like I hope I can decipher this cryptic code of a name. No, he comes along and he teaches us. Here's my name and here's what that means for you. He teaches us, by the way, not in a cold academic fashion. He teaches us through a relationship in the same way that a father teaches his son or a mother teaches her daughter, God teaches us what he is like in a relationship. Now, in this morning's text, the two main things that God communicates about himself are his love and his power. There are a bunch of different attributes of God, right? More than love and power, but in this text, that's what he is wanting to highlight, that's what he wants to show off. And listen, far from a, a philosopher's quandary, how can God be all-loving and all-powerful at the same time? God is utterly unembarrassed to tell us that he is all-loving and all-powerful at the same time, and he doesn't come along and try to say, well, actually, you know, in case you were wondering how that actually works with a problem of pain, let me diagram this out for you. He doesn't do that. He tells us, and then he shows us And these truths might confuse us because of sin, but that's not the purpose here. In this story, God's revelation of his power and love are meant to be a comfort to his people. And they can be a comfort to you too this morning if you would just stop trying to be God. If you would just stop assuming that you can fully understand the secrets of the universe. Stop thinking that you can get down to the bottom of every ethical quandary and just like receive by faith The fact that the God who made you, who made this entire universe, which you can't even begin to wrap your minds around, is in fact all-powerful and all-loving. So let's consider each of these in turn. Let's start with God's power. El Shaddai, that's how God revealed himself. El Shaddai, God Almighty. In the pages yet to come, God is going to show himself to be mighty indeed, supremely powerful, But before we get to those signs and wonders, God tells us what's coming. Look in verse one. Chapter six, verse one. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of the land. Have you ever seen anyone, uh, excuse me, not seen, ever heard anyone say, uh, my hand was forced? You know that phrase, like, uh, I didn't want to, but he, he forced my hand. Well, this is where that comes from, right? Pharaoh is going to have his hand forced by God to do God's bidding. This is once again a case where God is flexing on Pharaoh. He's, he's telling Moses, listen, I know that you're nervous, you're afraid that Pharaoh's not gonna listen to you, that he's not gonna do what you're telling him to do. <laughs> Stop. I'm gonna make him do it. He may not want to move his hand. But I'm God. And I'm going to move his hand. Watch, what, watch this, Moses. Watch what's about to happen. You're worried that, pho- that Pharaoh won't let the people go? He himself will be the one to say, get out of here. Pharaoh is going to send them packing at the end of the day. That's God talking about how powerful he is. The book of Proverbs elaborates on this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Think about that. Who can control water? We do our best. It takes a lot of reinforced steel and concrete and a lot of money and manpower and It's so hard to control water. Water cuts through rocks. Water tears through a land. Water can destroy an entire city. A tsunami is unleashing. Everybody better take cover. Who can control water? Who can control water in a king's heart? God says, "Ah, it's just like a little little puddle in my hand. I can kind of make it do what I want. That's the power of God. So... Are you encouraged by that this morning, brothers and sisters? Because it's not like this is their God, this is your God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of Israel, the God of Jesus, it's your God. He is your God. God's power does things and goes places and accomplishes purposes that no one else can. I remember everyone, everyone who knew me before I got saved said that I was gonna end up dead or in prison. Or maybe in prison and then dead. I went to every kind of rehab, I went to lockdown facility, boot camp, inpatient, outpatient therapy, I got the thing where they stick needles in you, acupuncture, I was on every kind of medication you can possibly imagine. I mean, they just tried everything, nothing could work, and then I met Jesus. The power of God came to me and did something that nobody else could do. There's nothing in your life that he cannot enter into and change for the better. There's no injustice in this world that he can't punish. There's no sin that he can't kill. There's no relationship he can't fix. There's no addiction that he cannot break. You think, oh, this this guy's lost forever. There's no way he's gonna stop being an alcoholic or a drug addict. Wrong. I've seen it too many times. God comes and he does it with ease. There's no wound he can't heal. I've been in therapy for 20 years trying to get this out of me. Yeah, maybe that's part of the problem. You know? There's no enemy he can't conquer and there's no heart he can't touch. You know that person in your life that you think there's no way that they're gonna come to know Jesus? That person you think, man, their heart is so hard. They're so hostile to the gospel. They have so many objections. There's just not a chance in the world that they're gonna, they they just can't be saved. I believe it for this guy down down the road. I believe it for my coworker who's asking questions. But I can't believe it for this person. (laughs) That is the exact person that the Lord delights to save. Paul was a terrorist. The power of God got to him. Your your grandpa, your friend, the, the, the guy, the atheist buddy you have with the fedora hat and the neck beard who likes to argue with people all the time online. Oh yeah, prime target. El Shaddai. You know, when Paul is writing to the Christians in Ephesus, he says, I'm praying for you and I'm praying that the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened so that you will be able to comprehend what is The full power of God in your life. That's what Paul wanted them to understand. And he says it like this. He goes, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and yet you have been raised up with Christ. This is how marriages are saved This is how drunks stop drinking. This is how rebellious children learn to walk in obedience. This is how churches repent of their sins and their heresies and begin to preach the gospel and practice discipline. This is how sinners come to Christ. So I'm praying that for you this morning, brothers and sisters. I'm praying that you will understand the power of God, the same power that redeemed Israel by God's outstretched arm, the same power that raised Christ from the grave, that power lives in us. And then there's God's love. You have to remember, Yahweh is God's covenant name. It's the name that God gives to his people when he says, I love you in a special way that commits me to you in a way that I'm not committed to everyone else. In marriage, you kinda have that like with your pet names. You know, I don't know what your pet names are. Amber, tell them what ours are. No. But we have, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's kind of the same thing, right? There's a a kind of name exchange between us that we have in relational intimacy that we just don't have. You know, I don't tell Trevor he's my little pumpkin butt, right? (laughs) Not typically. (laughs) Yahweh is the name that God gives to the people that especially belong to him hey, I love you, I'm making a promise to save you, to be your God, you're gonna be my people, and listen, here's what you need to call me. If you ever doubt that I love you, just remember my name, Yahweh. Now, think about how significant it is that in this story, God chooses to pair these two attributes together. In the world where we live, it feels like these two attributes belong a mile apart. You can be loving or you can be powerful, but you can't be both, right? You can make money in society or you can do good in society, but you can't do both, right? That's the kind of false dichotomy that our our brain tends to operate in. But God comes along and he says, I am all loving and I am all powerful. Think about this. If God were all loving, but he were not powerful, he would have every desire in the world to save his people, but he would just be Utterly incapable of saving them. You know, I love you, I wish I could help, but I can't. Now, if he was all powerful but not loving, then he would have the ability to save them to the utmost, but he would have no real reason to do it. Why would he go out of his way? Why would he go through all of this? But the fact of the matter is that our God is both powerful and loving, which means that he can not only comfort us in our affection excuse me, in our affliction. But he can also rescue us. He can save us. You know, so often in life, I talk with people as a pastor and they tell me some really terrible things. Hard things, scary things. Things that I'm like, Jesus, just come back now, you know? (laughs) And Sometimes I can say things that are helpful. We can open the Bible, we can read, and I'm like, actually, well, if you just look here, I think, the, I think we can actually fix this. But so often it's the case, I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know, I don't have the answer. Like, I don't have the power to fix you. I had breakfast with a homeless guy the other day, and I'm sitting there, and I'm doing my best to love him. I I buy him a meal. I'm trying to talk with him about how to get a job and where to find a house to live. And I'm sitting there, and I'm talking to this guy, this guy made in the image of God, this guy that God loves. And I love him, and I'm trying my best. And I'm like, what can I do? And at the end of the day, I'm like, I can't. I can't. I can try. I can do my best, and maybe the Lord will come behind me and give me a measure of grace But I'm like, man, I can't fix you. I love you, but I can't fix you. But that's not what God is like. God sees us and he loves us. Even though he doesn't have to, he loves us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Even when we were his enemies, he loves us and he can fix us. And in the gospel in Christ, he has promised to fix us. That's what God is telling Moses in this story. Moses is in his darkest hour of doubt and fear and he says, Moses, I love you and this does not depend on your power. It depends on mine. I am the one who keeps my covenant promises and I am going to lead you through this. Now what's astonishing about this, and in some sense, some strange sense it should comfort us, is that Moses, even after receiving this revelation, still doubts God. In verse nine, we see Moses take this message of God's covenant love and awesome power to the people of Israel. He's like, all right, I'll go tell them. And then they don't listen. So he's broken, he's dejected, he's exhausted, he's fearful, and then we read this. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery so Moses says to God, if if I can't even get my own people, your covenant people, God, if I can't get your covenant people to believe your promise, what hope is there for me to go before Pharaoh? And that's kind of the whole point. The God who is sovereign over Pharaoh's heart to harden it in unbelief is also sovereign over everything else in this story. He's sovereign over every detail in the story. He's even sovereign over Moses' heart his weak, trembling, fearful, doubting heart. He's sovereign over it and he steals Moses for the task of hell. Ha- if, Mo- if God wasn't stealing Moses' heart, for he would have quit a long time ago. But next week, we're going to see Moses goes right back into Pharaoh. He's, God, I can't go to Pharaoh. I mean, he's sweating bullets. You know, He's having an anxiety attack. Your people aren't listening to me. The king of Egypt, he's not going to listen to me. I mean, if he would, he could. If he could, he would quit. But God is stealing his heart, and he ends up going into Pharaoh. More on that next week. The final thing I want you to see in this morning's text is what Moses does with this revelation He receives in verse 6 God commands Moses say this to the people of Israel and then in verses 10 and 13 Moses is commanded to speak the same revelation to Pharaoh so here's what I want you to see the main ministry of Moses in this story is to communicate the revelation he has received that's his only ministry he's not to edit the message He's not to add to the message. He doesn't have to come up with the message. All he has to do is be a faithful ambassador of the message. He's like a paper boy. The paper boy doesn't open the newspaper and interpret the events. He doesn't circle and underline things to draw your attention to them. He doesn't edit the stories in any way. The paper boy says, here's the news. I'm delivering it to you. That's what Moses is called to do In this ministry and here's the thing that's really incredible that's your ministry too from moses to david to the apostles to decatur alabama today the ministry that god calls his people to does not really change sometimes it's a priest sometimes it's a prophet sometimes it's a king underneath all of that is the job to simply communicate what god has told you about himself This is why, as Christians, we do the Great Commission. We take the message of the Gospel, which is a revelation of who God is and what He's done in Christ to save us, and we take that to a a lost and dying world. And think about what we say when we baptize people who come to believe that message. What do we say? I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why do we do that? Because we are recognizing the fact that you have in fact received the revelation from us. You have received it by faith. You have come to agree with us that the Lord is God. He is all-powerful, he is all-loving, and he is committed to saving us. Friends, God is there. He's not silent. If you're sitting there thinking, well, I've never heard God speak to me, you just kind of misunderstood the way that God has promised us. Listen, you're not in this room by accident. Remember earlier when I talked, how, I talked about how God speaks to us through providence? Providence is how God's invisible hand sort of works history all together to lead in one direction. How is it that you're here this morning? You didn't have to be here. Matter of fact, maybe you didn't even want to be here. You could have been, maybe you should have been somewhere else, but somehow, some way, through a relationship, through an impulse, through something you saw on the internet, maybe just a feeling you had this morning, you showed up. Why? Is God not speaking to you? Is God not speaking to you right now? You're here because God is saying, listen, I love you and I want to save you and by the way, I'm powerful enough to do that. Don't give me any of this junk about how I can't be saved. Of course you can be saved. I'm God. And so God has brought you here today to speak to you. Now listen, for those of us who are here who are petrified, terrified really, of the thought of speaking God's revelation, the truth about God to other people, Find comfort in Moses. He was fearful, he was doubting. We're all like Moses. We look too much at our circumstances, not enough at God and his power. We can come up with a million reasons why we should not proclaim the name of God. Who am I to do this? Surely they won't listen to me. And this is where the bedrock truth of God's commitment to his own glory must strengthen us to the nth degree. God is committed to making his name known In the Exodus event, the means by which God made his name known was through the speaking of Moses and the signs of Moses and Aaron and through the plagues. In the New Covenant, the means by which God is committed to making his name known is through you, the church. Here's what happens, and it never changes. You receive the word. Then you go out and you share the word. You share the word with your coworkers. You share the word with people you play soccer with or do jujitsu with or you share it with your neighbors, you share it with your family members. At the end of the day, you are an ambassador. You speak the revelation of God to people who very desperately need to hear it. You are God's megaphone. God didn't have to choose you. He could have communicated himself primarily through an academic institution. He could have communicated himself primarily through a conquering army. He could have, you know, sort of just written his name large in the sky. Through weather events, he could have revealed himself. But no, he chose to reveal himself through us. Us who are weak, sinful, foolish. When people critique the church and they talk about how jacked up the church is, I always just nod along with them. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think you've covered it. There's, have you been in a church? It's worse. It's worse than you know. Well, not Sixth Avenue, <laughs> especially Sixth Avenue. He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Do you, do you, that's that's you. Okay, that's me. We're foolish, and, and don't you ever forget it. He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose you for a reason. If he would have chosen anyone else, Somebody wise, somebody powerful. There would have been some boasting on man's part, but because he chose the weak Moses, the fearful Gideon, the doubting Abraham, the habitually struggling Christian at Sixth Avenue, because he chose you, he gets all of the glory. What a backhanded compliment, right? He chooses us because we suck. Funny but true. I forgot, sorry, for saying suck. So stop arguing with God about your unworthiness. He knew that when he chose you. That's why he chose you. So just go and just be obedient. Trust him. He doesn't need your hand. He's gonna push the hand of anyone else and accomplish his purposes. Here's what I want you to tell the world. This is the last last thing. You have to go out and you have to tell the world, listen, you can either be a Moses or you can be a Pharaoh. You can be in Israel or you can be in Egypt. You see, both of these groups of people received a revelation of God. Egypt knew by the time this whole thing was over, they knew who Yahweh was. Pharaoh knew who Yahweh was, but the way that they knew him was through his judgment. His power was executed against them for their rebellion. His love was focused in an act of justice against them. Moses and Israel, by grace, knew God through his mercy. And that's the message you have to tell everyone. Listen, there are two paths before you. God will make himself known to you. On the last day, on the last day, everyone will open their eyes before the God of the universe, and they will have either known him as their savior or judge. You have to tell people that. You have to tell them that it's important to think about, not later, but now and you have to call them to believe in this God of great mercy, great power, and great love. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you will help us to believe what we have heard. Help us to not merely be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. May this message that we have received about who you are and the way you work in this world strengthen our hand to be the most faithful ambassadors of your name we can possibly be from this week. When we feel fearful or anxious, Lord, help us to remember that the power is not with us, but with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.